author of Social TV and a professor at Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois. Corey, good to see you and uh, talk to you. Social TV, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so this is a book about the intersections between social media and television, which is obviously in the name. But more specifically, this was really a phenomenon that was really hyped by those two industries, by Hollywood, by Silicon Valley, in the late 2000s and early 2010s, when these industries recognized that people were watching television more and more with different screens in front of them. So they're watching TV, but they're also on their phone or on their laptop or their tablet at the same time. They're also increasingly at that time watching on demand or on streaming and the television industry, excuse me, is sort of seeing the future and realizing that we are going to a streaming oriented world, which we of course now exist in. And for a small stretch there, there were tons of initiatives and products and experiences that were hyped by both of those big industries that tried to bring social media and television together, whether that meant you know, different campaigns on Twitter or Facebook to drive people to chat while they were watching live or, you know, built products and apps that you would download on your phone or your tablet that would create this simultaneous synchronized experience so that while you're watching The Walking Dead on your TV, your iPad is giving you this simultaneous experience. It's got trivia, uh, you know, games shots from the comic book so you can kind of make the connection between the adaptation on TV and the source material in comics. And this was a big period for, you know, eight to 10 years where it seemed like the television industry in particular was invested in trying to create these synchronized experiences as a way to uphold the power of live TV in a world where, you know, live TV was increasingly losing its relevance as people were watching on their own time, on their own devices, on 50 different platforms, as opposed to, you know, the three networks or even just on cable. Are they still doing that? Because, you know, I, I'm wondering, I guess I haven't heard of it, but, you know, sometimes, you, you know, just because you haven't heard of it doesn't mean it's not going on. Yeah. What, what's going on now? It's certainly subsided quite a bit. I mean, the streaming wave has crested over all of Hollywood, right, in a way that just dominates the industry strategy, it dominates production, it obviously dominates distribution, but it also is so fundamental to how consumers watch. So there are some efforts, you know, particularly around big live events, sports, award shows, although those have lost their luster in a really significant way of trying to bring people together in a, you know, simultaneous environment or a synchronized environment where, you know, you're watching uh, the the big SEC football game and people are talking about it on Twitter or, you know, you're watching the Emmys or the Oscars and people are talking about it on Twitter. But those feel way more ad hoc. They don't feel as organized and coordinated in a way that the industry was pushing for a short period of time. And that's simply because they they just know that people in huge numbers are not watching in that very conventional way. You know, sports is really the last bastion of live TV. Even award shows um, over the last five years have taken a huge hit as far as live television viewership. The Emmys we just had in September, it was the lowest rated Emmys in the history of, of the broadcast, like by a significant margin. You know, last or earlier this year, we had a pretty significant Oscar telecast with Will Smith, you know, uh, smacking Chris Rock during the tele. Don't that do created- for ratings. Right. And that's what 
what was really fascinating about that is in the moment, that's what most people thought, right? I was watching live. I had Twitter open on my laptop and most of the reaction was presuming that that was a coordinated orchestrated event for that purpose to get people talking on social media. And in fact, it was not as we've now heard. Right. But that was a moment that was completely organic. That was not attempting to create this moment, this viral moment with television. And even that, you know, the the data shows that there was obviously a spike and people did turn on their TVs uh, to watch the Oscars in the few minutes after that. Right. To to figure to figure out like, okay, are they going to reveal that this is a bit right? (laughs) But it did not that peak in ratings for the short period of time, like was still completely minuscule to even like five or 10 or 15 years ago. Right. And part of that is just, you know, we have a completely personalized siloed cultural experience where, you know, if I like a very particular thing, I can go and find all of the entertainment and culture that really fits my interests. And you can do the same. So that collective experience that we used to really be forced into by the fewer number of options that we had, right? That if you wanted to watch television, you know, in the eighties and nineties, even with cable, there are few options for like scripted entertainment. And as we've gotten further into the streaming era, there's just very little that's pulling people to those live experiences. Right. And that means that a lot of these networks have given up on some of these initiatives. Now they're putting that energy in other places and, trying to do different things with those streaming platforms that create moments of collectivity, but it's not the same idea. It's often, you know, in an effort to try to build subscriber bases for those streaming platforms, as opposed to getting people to watch at a very specific moment. So it's a shift in not only how we watch that affects all of this, but also, you know, a shift in the business model where there there's less concern about live TV ratings and the ad rates that come with that and way more about, getting us to pay five or 10 or $15 a month for one of these streaming platforms. Cause once they have us there, they don't care if we watch anything, right? If you pay $15 a month yeah. for Netflix and you never watch anything, that's great for them. They don't it's care. The, it's the health club philosophy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're talking with Corey Barker, author of social TV, Bradley professor. And uh, just, uh, you know, it's fascinating listening to you, Corey, because, I'm thinking all of this has happened in a relatively short period of time, at least from my perspective, uh, growing up with, you know, old TV, old three networks and all that. And now we gravitate, as you said, to the streaming world. I I find it interesting. And I think you may have explained why that award shows have suddenly gone out of favor, because one would say one could say, well, there were why were people watching them in the first place? You know, it was always the same old thing. People, you know, canned applause and look at the stars. It would, do, you, do you think, is there a particular reason why those things collapsed? Or is that just, uh, you know, hey, it's, it's time has come? Yeah, I think there's a lot of converging factors to this. And there's been a lot of conversation uh, within the industry, within the Academy, to try to, like, save the telecast, to save the Oscars. One is obviously shifting viewer habits that just far fewer people have broadcast television have a television subscription in some in that conventional sense um you know that number of cord cutters as we call it is is increasing every year and and so is the cord nevers people who have literally never subscribed to cable um and the oscars for instance and most of these big award shows they're on the oscars are on abc and they don't stream anywhere 
Um, you have to watch on ABC, right? And so that's one piece that people just are not, they don't have access. Mm-hmm. The second piece is big shifts in Hollywood, right? The, the Oscars uh, used to celebrate, you mentioned the big time celebrities, but movies that a lot of people have seen, right? And right. there's a shift in Hollywood economics where there are really two types of movies that get made now. Movies that cost $250 million that have, you know, uh, characters wearing superhero costumes or they're recognizable intellectual property of some sort, right? Or there are five to $10 million independent films basically being made that maybe ultimately get distributed by a major studio, but have been picked up at a film festival or something to that effect. And that huge stratification in the industry means that most of the movies that get nominated for awards at the Oscars, most of the viewing audience has never seen, has never even heard of, hasn't even had the opportunity to view. I remember last year, you know, I try uh, to see as many of the the best picture nominees as I can and some of the other films that got multiple nominations. And there were multiple movies that I wanted to see before the telecast. And they just simply had not made it to Peoria yet because they were so small Right. And distributed at such a small level. So that's another thing. People are just not interested because they're not aware of the movies, right? That's a piece. And then I think there's also a sense of shift in in the how we view celebrities. And I think that it sort of feels generational, but I'm sure I probably feel that way because I'm of an age where I, I remember the Oscars being a cultural event. I remember celebrities, you know, A-list stars feeling like these mythical people and with social media and the different ways that the Hollywood has changed and celebrity has changed, there's just been like kind of a deconstruction of, you know, the celebrity as this mythic figure in many ways where people don't view A-list stars in the same way that they did in the nineties, right? There's just a different understanding and appreciation for celebrities. And I think it's it's also important to say that a lot of the data and the internal reporting that the Academy deals with um, in, in these conversations, like what do we do to make this relevant again, is that a large chunk of the potential audience is turned off by the perceived uh, throwing politics in the face of the audience, right? Where the right. Academy has been, they've done a lot of great things in diversifying um, as far especially racial representation within the membership, but they also spend a lot of time in these broadcasts being very self-satisfied about that fact, even though it took a huge public outcry to make that happen. Mm. And also just like that, you know, individual people or particular films represent mm. political progress in a way that I think even people who agree with those political ideologies get turned off by it. That just like it's already an event that is fully about people being self-satisfied it's a it's a party to celebrate you know ourselves basically from a hollywood standpoint and then adding the extra layer of not only are we so great as artists but our 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 art has like political import and what we are doing is resistance to fascism or resistance to then president trump or whatever right and so i think that part does in fact turn people off that the telecast just really pushes the politics, right? And, right? and I hate to say that, um, but I think that it does in that moment when there's already maybe not a huge reason to watch and then you know you're going to turn it on and people are using their speeches to talk about, well, you know, I did this 
I, I performed in this movie and ipso facto, that means that I'm like a political crusader in some way. Right. I think people do get tired of that. Right. So I think it's a huge like headwinds of things that it's really hard. There's been a, a bunch of reporting from the trades, the Hollywood trades in the last couple of weeks, because they had a big, uh, they've got a new like leader. I can't remember what they call it, like a CEO or president of the, of the Academy of Arts and Sciences. And, um, they had a big like town hall open meeting just a few weeks ago about like, what are we going to do to make this relevant again? And, you know, there were a lot of different ideas thrown out, but it's very clear that they recognize that too. But I don't know if you really put that genie back in the bottle, right? I don't know how you convince people right. under 35 who have not really thought about the Oscars in a meaningful way that suddenly they really have to care. Unless you start, you know, this year, if they, if Top Gun gets 15 nominations and it's all about Tom Cruise, who is obviously a controversial figure, but is the, an A-lister from a different generation of stardom, right? Maybe that's a little different. But when it's a bunch of movies that are good and people love who've seen them, but very few people have seen them, they've made like $3 million at the box office. Nobody has a reason to tune in. Yeah. We're talking with Corey Barker. Corey, um, you mentioned, you know, we're, we're well into the age of streaming now. And I think the pandemic uh, accelerated that movement, obviously, with with all the people have, are now taking into their homes. Where do you see that going? Did you have a prediction? I, I mean, you know, I know, you know, the theaters are sort of the, the old metroplexes are hanging out there. Uh, where do you where do you see uh, in the short term, long term, this this thing rolling to? That's a great question. I mean, I think, as you alluded to, the the pandemic came at a really interesting time for the streaming landscape. And that was that most of these major media conglomerates, they didn't have a streaming platform before, you know, the end of 2019 or early 2020. We're already planning on rolling them out. You know, a lot of these companies have, were planning like a Netflix competitor for years and a bunch of them debuted around early pandemic days. So Apple TV Plus, Disney Plus, HBO Max, Peacock, Paramount Plus, all of those are only a few years old. So we've had a two or three year run here of companies really throwing their new streaming platforms in our face, offering you know extremely discounted or free trial subscriptions to boost up those numbers. But what's happened in 2022 is all of those platforms, including Netflix, have hit a wall in the number of people who are willing to subscribe, um, the amount of money that it takes to build up your content, your film, your television, your sports, your documentary stuff on that platform. And so this year has actually been a really bad year for essentially every network or every streaming platform, whether it's losing subscribers, having to jack up subscription rates, most of them including Netflix that have said, you know, we're never going to do ads by the end of this year, by the end of 2022 or early 23, they're going to have ad tiers where you can pay a little bit less than the increased subscription fee that we've seen over the last couple of years, but now you're going to see ads. So I think we're at a- We're talking with Corey Barker. And Corey, um, while, while you've got your crystal ball out there, <laughs> because uh, these are all uh, you know subjective, but I'm thinking- you, you're on the university front. You see students every day. Um, where, where do they get their news? In other words, I guess I'm, I'm getting around to a question about the newspaper. Um, digital news is here, obviously, uh, in a big way. Where do you see that going? What's the newspaper of tomorrow look like to you? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, especially talking to college students, right? And I think there are obviously economic implications there um, where not a, not all college students, not most college students think about paying for news, right? I think that often happens when you get, you know, post-college and you sort of settle into where you think right. you're going to be and you're invested in the community. But, but I think the difference is, prior generations of people, myself included, you know, I'm, I'm older than my students, but I'm just essentially one generation behind them. You know, I grew up in a world where my family subscribed to the news. I may not have read it, but I, it was the thing in my home. And I think what I see more and more now is just people who are in their early twenties, who they've never been in a household environment where anybody paid for news or valued news in that way. And that's not to demean anybody to, for making that choice. But I think the environment has changed such that most people uh, don't view news as something that they need to pay for because there's enough that's available for free. And often that comes, you know, especially with younger folks, but also, you know, people over 40 and 50 on social media. We're just talking about different social platforms. Right. The other thing that I think think has made that complicated is, you know, it's basically the substitution effect, you know, I'm not an economist, but like basic economics, when you're when you have a newspaper, like a print newspaper, and you're in a, a, a local market, and there's basically only one of them, or maybe there's two, you're in a separate category, like print newspaper, and people decide, okay, if I want to subscribe, like I'm buying that thing. Now, when most of it is digital, especially in targeting younger people, your subscription, quote unquote, for the news, whether that's the PJ Star or the New York Times, is just another of 50 subscriptions that you have for music, for your television, for your food, for your coffee, for your dog's food, right? We live in an insanely subscriptionified society. And now when you ask students to think about like, would you pay a subscription for news? They often say, you know, I already have too many subscriptions that have nothing to do with news, but now news is in that category of just, it's an app on my phone and all of these apps are things that I subscribe to and I don't need that one, right? And I think that's a big challenge. And so what happens, I see from my vantage point, and I bring this up in class all the time, is that we're seeing a real stratification and that always existed between the big national news outlets and regional and local papers, Right. But I think if you follow just the New York Times or the Journal, and to a lesser extent, especially this year, they've had some bad news, the, the, the Post, right? right? Those companies keep getting bigger. They keep buying other companies, whether that's tech startups or other media outlets, you know, the New York. When you minimize the distance, when you can get the, everything from the Times just as easy as you can get everything from the PJ Star, and one of them has tons of stuff that tells you, you know, like that this is a valuable eleven ninety nine a month. And the other one tries to cover the best that they can using the resources that they have, but those resources keep shrinking. Why would, you know, why would anyone, unless you're very invested in the local community, pick the local option over the one that gives you, you know, literally hundreds of more stories a day, right? And I think that's the, that's the biggest challenge facing every news company that is not one of the five biggest ones. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, that makes sense because that's what we're seeing. The big, get bigger, the rich get richer, uh, you know, that concept. And, and uh, unfortunately, uh, many communities 
I mean, we're hearing the term now, uh, news deserts. So, you know, it's, it's gotten to, to a point. Uh, one last thing, Corey, and, and this is fascinating uh, talking with you. What, you know, what is your kind of focus with your students now? In other words, you've got communications. Well, you've just gone through a whole litany of things. What, what, are, you, what are you exploring with your students, um, you know, that, that really interests you? Um, can you give us a little idea? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm really interested in everybody's media literacy and kind of understanding of how media and information circulates. And obviously, that's super relevant to communication students as they think about their lives as potential media producers or communication producers. But what I like to do, and I think is really valuable, is have the types of conversations that we've had today and you know, read certain articles or do do projects that allow students, <clears throat> excuse me, to have to think a little bit about, you know, those big structural limitations or changes within an industry, whether that's television and film moving more towards an emphasis on streaming or what's happened in the news industry with a move towards digital and all of the repercussions of that on how news is made, how it's distributed, uh, the labor implications of that, right? I think those types of conversations, they may, you know, occasionally make students feel a little, uh, you know, down about their potential career prospects. But I think it's useful to prepare students for the types of industries that they're going to go into so that they can be the people who can try to change those things from within. And obviously, that's the lofty goal for some of these industries that are so big and have been around for so long. But as we've talked about, they've obviously also experienced significant disruption, you know, even right. over the last 10 or 15 years. So our, my students can be part of the next sequence of disruptions and, you know, preparing them for how to use audio or how to use video or do social. Obviously that stuff is essential in journalism and communication courses, right? It, but it's also important to talk about how those technologies or those approaches um, are connected to these bigger structural uh, developments or limitations or effects, right? What does it mean that we spend a lot of time in class now thinking about how news gets distributed on social media? And that's just a fact, right? We talk about that all the time. Like news organizations just have to be on Twitter or have to have a Facebook page or have to be on Instagram. And each new platform that comes out, most of the time, there's somebody in a newsroom that says, well, we got to try to reach young people, you know, so we got to mm -hmm. be on that platform. Sure. But do they have do they have anybody in the newsroom that can do that, that can actually appeal to people? And that's not a disrespect to anybody in the newsroom. They're there to do a job that they were, you know, hired to do. And it doesn't involve TikTok or, or it doesn't involve whatever next platform it is. And so I think that's that's really essential to informing and educating the next generation of media producers. Um, you know, and even if they don't go into media, they have a better understanding of what those industries are like just as consumers, right? Which I think sharpens their media literacy and makes them better thinkers and more ethical thinkers out in the world. That sounds right. Corey, it's been great. Uh, we thank you so much. Corey Barker, whose uh, book is Social TV and is teaching at Bradley University. Corey, we look forward to talking to you down the road here. Um, lots of things changing, lots of, lots of things happening. So yeah, great to, to stay in touch with you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Corey. Take care. Yeah.